Well, this feels odd. It's Saturday afternoon, as I heard that the sermon gets recorded. And I'm looking at about 147 empty chairs. And considering that most of in tennis shoes, running shorts, and a sweatshirt. Meanwhile, you might be sitting on your couch in a robe and slippers as you listen to this sermon. Now, as we made it clear in our announcement, we sincerely hope this is not the case for multiple Sundays. But if it is, we will explore our options for making sermons available through video, even though that would mean I'd have to dress nicer, and I have been told that I have a face for radio. But for now, the elders and I believe this is the best way that we can shepherd you in these extraordinary circumstances. Just know that we miss you, we love you, and we are praying to see all of you again soon. Now, last week we read Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 38. This is a major turning point in the story and a roller coaster ride of a passage. It starts with a relatively routine, for Jesus at least, healing of a blind man. But from there, things start to happen fast. In response to Jesus' question, Who do you say I am? Peter makes his good confession. You are the Christ. Now, this is a major breakthrough for the disciples. After multiple episodes of getting Jesus wrong, they finally seem to understand the truth about who he is. But then immediately after Peter's good confession, Jesus predicts that he will suffer, be rejected by the religious leaders, be killed, and rise after three days. Now, that's not exactly what Peter and the disciples had in mind when they confessed Jesus as the Christ. In Peter's mind, Jesus had it all backwards. His enemies were supposed to die, not him. The disciples are so taken aback by Jesus' talk of suffering, rejection, and being killed that the part about resurrection doesn't even seem to register with them. So when Peter attempts to rebuke Jesus for predicting a fate so unbecoming of the Messiah, Jesus instead rebukes Peter. Jesus doesn't just predict that he will suffer, be rejected, and be killed. He insists that he must suffer, must be rejected, and must be killed. Jesus is so convinced that God the Father has given him this mission that he calls Peter Satan for trying to stand in his way. And then finally, in light of what will soon happen to him, Jesus calls Peter and the rest of the disciples to a radical new understanding of what it means to follow him. He challenges them to deny themselves and take up their crosses. He tells them that in order for Jesus to save their lives, the disciples must be willing to lose their lives. He cautions them against the temptation of gaining the world, but losing their souls along the way. And he promises that one day he will return. And when he does, he will not be ashamed of those who followed him. So the healing of the blind man was somewhat unremarkable. The good confession seemed like great progress. But then the rest of chapter 8 was shocking. So as we pick up today in chapter 9, we move from a passage that felt dark and ominous to a passage that features breathtaking light. 
after Jesus' prediction about the inglorious end to his earthly ministry that is quickly approaching, three of his apostles get a small taste of his eternal divine glory. It's an event in Jesus' earthly ministry that has perplexed and fascinated Bible readers for generations even if it doesn't get as much attention as his birth, death, resurrection, or even his ascension. We're talking today about Jesus' transfiguration. So open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And since you're not in the sanctuary and you don't have a screen to look at, you can read along with me in your Bibles. So Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 1. But before we read, we will pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, this afternoon, this time when I'm preaching, and whatever time may come when people are listening to this sermon. Father, thank you that with the gifts of modern technology, even when unexpected things like a pandemic arise, we can still be together, at least in some sense. We can still talk to each other on the phone, we can text each other, email each other, talk through social media. We can listen to the same sermon, even if we're not all in the same room at the same time. But Father, of course, we pray for our current situation. Uh, We pray that this pandemic would come to an end, not just so that we can get back to our normal old conveniences, but so that people would not suffer, Uh, whether it's the old, whether it's those with pre-existing medical conditions, or, or whether it's others whether it's here locally or nationally or globally, we pray for this to come to an end. We pray for you to protect us. We pray for you to watch over us. And Father, we pray that we would trust you through this, that we would not get too anxious, we would not get too fearful, even as the rest of the world seems to be falling apart. I pray that we would trust you through this, that we would know that you are sovereign, we would know that you are good, regardless of what's happening around us. And so, Father, I ask you to watch over us as we listen to this sermon, watch over us as we read your word, watch over us as we embark on a week that seems much more unpredictable than previous weeks, and that, Father, you would please bring us back together soon as a church, that we would get through this, that we would use this as an opportunity to love each other, that we would be reminded of how much we need each other and how much we love being together. And that, Father, ultimately, even though it's incredibly difficult for us to see, that you would somehow be glorified through this event and through the way that we respond to this event. Again, we love you. We thank you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, starting in Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now before we get to the rest of our passage, a few quick words about verse 1. So what exactly is Jesus referring to here? What event is he talking about? What's something that some, but not all of his disciples would get to see? And could also be described as the kingdom of God coming with power. So is he talking about his second coming? He did just reference that in Mark chapter 8 verse 38. 
But if he's referring to this, does that mean that Jesus was wrong? Because really, none of the apostles will be alive to see Jesus' second coming. They're all dead now, and his second coming hasn't happened yet. Or maybe he's referring to his resurrection. He predicted that as well just a few verses ago. And the resurrection could certainly be described as the kingdom of God coming with power. It's also true that only some of his disciples got to see it, because by then Judas was dead. Or maybe Jesus is referring to the event we're about to read, his transfiguration. Some of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, get a taste of the power and glory of God's kingdom at the transfiguration. But not all of them do. Well, it's safe to say that Jesus is not referring to his second coming. Later in the story, Jesus tells the disciples that in his human nature, he doesn't know the timing of his second coming. So it would be odd for him to predict the timing of it here. It is possible that he's referring to his resurrection. It's also possible that he's referring to his transfiguration. But the truth is, none of us really knows for sure. So... Maybe one of us can ask him later. But picking up in Mark chapter 9, verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses... And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So Peter, James, and John are three particularly close disciples of Jesus. They were some of his earliest followers. In Mark chapter 5, verse 37, where Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, Peter, James, and John were invited to join him at Jairus' house, while the rest of the apostles stayed behind. The same thing happens this time around, when those three are invited to join Jesus on a hike. Now in the Bible, mountains are often the setting for important events. God has a knack for revealing himself on mountains. In the ancient world, some people viewed mountains as a place where both literally and figuratively, heaven and earth could meet. So these four men get to the top of the mountain, and according to Luke's gospel, Jesus begins to pray. The three apostles, meanwhile, were heavy with sleep. But then out of the blue, two famous Old Testament figures from long ago, Moses and Elijah, appear with Jesus on top of that mountain. Now Moses and Elijah had their own mountaintop experiences with God. With Moses, it happens more than once in the book of Exodus. It's on a mountain that Moses hears God call him from the burning bush. 
It's on a mountain that God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. It's on a mountain that Moses gets a peek at God's glory. Likewise, Elijah had his own mountaintop experience with God. In 1 Kings 19, the discouraged Elijah stood on the mount before the Lord and felt the rumble of a powerful earthquake. He felt the heat of a raging fire. But he ultimately heard God's voice in a low whisper. So in short, this isn't the first time we've seen God do something special on a mountain. And it's also not the first time that Moses and Elijah have been involved. But Moses and Elijah also have something else in common, and that is slightly untraditional ends to their earthly existence. In Deuteronomy 34, Moses dies on top of a mountain, but no one knows where he is buried. In 2 Kings 2, Elijah doesn't technically die at all. Rather, he's taken away by chariots and a whirlwind up to heaven. As a result, Moses and Elijah were sometimes referred to as deathless ones. And while Jesus will experience death, Jesus will not be dead for long. And finally, Peter, James, and John would have heard that both Moses and Elijah were expected to have something to do with the coming of the Messiah. Deuteronomy 18 promised that one day another prophet like Moses would arise. The book of Malachi says that one day a messenger will come to prepare the way. Elijah will arrive before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So in the Bible, you never know what could happen when you get on top of a mountain. And that's where Peter, James, and John find themselves when Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus. Now, maybe the three disciples are hallucinating. Maybe they were just groggy and dehydrated after that long hike. Maybe it's all just a dream when they were still half asleep. After all, everyone knows that Moses and Elijah are long gone. But this is not a hallucination. It's not a dream. And Moses and Elijah aren't even the most amazing sight on top of that mountain. As amazing as it must have been for these three disciples to see Moses and Elijah standing in front of them, Jesus overshadows both of them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Not even Billy Mays. Luke records that Jesus' face was altered. Matthew says his face shone like the sun. Jesus' appearance at the transfiguration can stand up with any other biblical depiction you can think of that describes God's glory. So Peter sleepily, fearfully, clumsily responds to this vision with good intentions. He wanted to build shelters for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Maybe he's just trying to emulate Abraham in the book of Genesis, who often built altars after he encountered God. And then a voice rang out, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Like he did at Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River, 
God the Father gives his stamp of approval to Jesus the Son. Now, it's a lot to take in, isn't it? What in the world does Jesus' transfiguration mean? What's it all about? Why is it happening here and now in Jesus' ministry? And what's the deal with Moses and Elijah? Well, if you're not sure what to make of it as you read the story, imagine how Peter, James, and John must have felt. Well, we get a glimpse of how they felt as we pick up in verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? That might be a reference to Isaiah 53. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So once again, Jesus talks about rising from the dead. And once again, the disciples are too overwhelmed to understand what he means. But Jesus tells them to keep quiet about what they've seen until that day comes. His suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection must happen before the disciples can announce or even understand the full glory of Christ that they just witnessed. The transfiguration was just a peek at the incarnate Jesus' true glory. His death and resurrection must occur before it all truly comes together and before his disciples are commissioned to announce it to the world. So instead, the disciples focus their attention on Elijah. What was that all about? Well, Jesus informs them that Elijah has already come in the form of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the messenger promised in the book of Malachi, the one who would arrive before the day of the Lord comes. So if Elijah was supposed to be preparing the way for the Messiah, and if Elijah has already come in the form of John the Baptist, well, what does that say about Jesus? It says that Jesus is the Messiah. Peter proclaimed him to be back at the good confession. And Jesus's suffering, rejection, death will do nothing to change that. So once again, this passage feels like a lot to take in. On the one hand, it's fascinating, but on the other hand, it's a little bit confusing. So what does it mean? Why does it happen? And maybe the biggest question on your mind, why should it matter to Christians like us right now? Well, a few thoughts. In context, Jesus' transfiguration is a kind of encouragement to his three closest disciples. Having just heard Jesus' prediction of his own suffering, rejection, and death, the disciples, especially Peter, who took the brunt of Jesus' rebuke, may be feeling a little bit anxious. They may even be wrestling with doubt. 
they may be second guessing whether or not they want to follow a guy who's going to suffer, be rejected, and be killed by the religious leaders. Remember what we talked about last week. The disciples could not fathom the possibility that the Christ, the Messiah, could possibly suffer that kind of fate. So if there's ever been a time for the apostles to cut bait and stop following Jesus, that time is now. But the transfiguration reminds them that they are not following just another man. They are not following the next iteration in a long line of wannabe messiahs. They are not following a man doomed to failure at the cross. They are following God's glorious and beloved son. And the father has called them to listen to him. On top of that, Jesus's transfiguration also gives Peter, James and John and us a glimpse at Jesus's full glory. If his confrontations with the religious leaders showed Jesus's authority, and if his miracles showed Jesus's power, and if his feeding of the crowds showed Jesus's shepherd-like compassion, then the transfiguration shows Jesus's glory. Again, Jesus's suffering, rejection, and death will not in any way diminish the glory that Peter, James, and John See on top of this mountain. In fact, those events will only amplify and cement Jesus's glory once and for all. These events, along with his resurrection, of course, will show Peter, James and John, the rest of the disciples and the rest of the world just how glorious Jesus really is. It's not just on a mountaintop that we see Jesus' glory. We can even see his glory when Jesus walks through his own valley of the shadow of death. And as for what this passage means for us, let me ask you this. How does it feel to know that this same Jesus, with clothes white as light, with a face as bright as the sun in all of his glory, died for someone like you, died for someone like me, died for our sins. How does it feel to know that this same Jesus, in all his beauty and majesty, is sitting at the Father's right hand right now, interceding for you? And how does it make you feel to know that this Jesus So magnificent that Peter, James, and John must have been squinting as they looked at him. Will one day return, raise the dead who believed in him, and bring all of us who believe in him into his kingdom. Knowing that this Jesus did all of this for us ought to make us feel both humble and grateful. We know how it made Peter feel. Decades later, in 2 Peter 1, 16-18, Peter is still talking about seeing Jesus' power, coming, majesty, honor, and glory at the transfiguration. Decades later, Peter is still talking about what he saw on top of that holy mountain. 
And when we see Jesus in his full glory as well, how can we not talk about him too? In Romans 8, verse 18, the Apostle Paul famously says that our sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Jesus' immediate mission in the Gospel of Mark doesn't exactly look glorious. His road is paved with suffering, rejection, and death. But because Jesus fulfilled that mission, because Jesus was ultimately raised from the dead, his glory at the transfiguration is not just a temporary event. Because of Jesus' suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection, Peter, James, and John will have the privilege and joy of seeing Jesus in his full glory for eternity. And so will all of us who believe in him. And when we see his glory, we will know that the sufferings he endured on our behalf and the sufferings that we endure as his followers cannot hold a candle to that glory. John got to see this glory again before he died. In Revelation chapter 1, long after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, John once again sees Jesus standing in glory with his face shining like the sun. John had endured plenty of his own sufferings to get to that point. He experiences this vision of Christ after he's been exiled to the island of Potmos as an old man. But what John got to see, and what we will one day get to see as well, makes both his sufferings and our sufferings pale in comparison to the glory that will be revealed to us. In 1922, Helen H. Lamel wrote the hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, which I read as a kid growing up in church. Some of the lyrics to that hymn go like this. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. As we walk through our own sufferings, as we take up our crosses and follow Jesus, whatever our crosses might look like, we too may find ourselves weary and troubled. But may we never forget the glory of Jesus in those times of darkness. The glory that Peter, James, and John saw shining like the sun. The glory they saw on that mountain for just a moment is the glory they now see eternally. And one day we will see that same glory with them. But until that day comes, may we turn our eyes upon Jesus, worship him in the full radiance of his glory right now, and follow him, whether we're on top of a mountain or whether we're down in a dark valley. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for your word. 
Thank you for the story that we read, this peak at the glory of Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would sustain us and preserve us until that day when we can truly see your glory in all of its fullness. We look forward to the day that you return when we will see that glory shining as bright as the sun, when we will need no sun, no moon, no stars, because you yourself will be our light. We look forward to standing and worshiping you in that kingdom and gazing at you in that kingdom and praising you accordingly. But Father, for now, again, I just pray that you would walk with us in this life. When we feel weary, when we feel troubled, when we feel intimidated or worn down by the crosses you've called us to bear, by the self-denial that you've called us to participate in, by the sufferings that we inevitably will go through, whether it's a global pandemic or whether it's something else. Father, I ask that you watch over us as we follow your son, Jesus Christ. May we glorify you. May we honor you along the way. May we turn our eyes upon Jesus, fix our eyes upon Jesus, follow him faithfully by the power of your spirit. And Lord, we trust We're confident that by your grace, one day in eternity, we will get to see Christ's glory fully. We love you. We worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.